Hey everyone, Corey here. Welcome to this week's chapter by chapter recap. I'm here with my husband, Matlock. Hey, hey. Matlock. How you doing today? <laughs> good. Doing good. Excited to recap. We are looking at uh, this week's assigned reading uh, through Bible Discovery and Bible Discovery TV, which of course was Job chapter 29 to Psalm 18. Job 29 to Psalm 18. So finishing up this one really interesting poetic book of the Bible and jumping into another interesting poetic book of the Bible, but they're very different. Job and Psalms are very different. All right, so Job 29. This is the beginning of Job's final defense. Remember that he's used uh, legal language, so courtroom language, um, ancient court language to kind of call God in because God has brought judgment upon Job, but there doesn't seem to be, Job can't pinpoint any reason for this judgment. So he is in confusion. So he's used this language trying to call God to come and testify against Job so that Job can understand. So his final defense of his character begins here in Job chapter 29. Job uh, lets everyone know that he's longing for what his life was like before all of this, which is quite natural. And then he launches this defense talking about all the things that he used to do beforehand just because they were godly, because he wanted to follow God. So things like he rescued the poor, orphans, widows, strangers. He took care of people uh, simply because God is the creator and Job wanted to honor that. Uh, In Job chapter 30 to 31, this defense continues. Uh, And now Job says, he, he points out an irony here. You know, these very people that I took care of, now they mock me. Everything has become terrible for me. He talks about all of these things that he purposely did in order to follow God with his morality. Things like, he says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to lust because I know that God sees all. He talks about how he didn't lie or deceive. He didn't deny justice to servants or show partiality uh, to the rich because the same God formed everyone in the womb of their mother. So he sees humanity on an equal playing field because God is creator of all. He says, I did not reject the poor, the widows, the fatherless, but I helped them with material possessions like food and clothing and overall just societal help. Uh, And he says, for I dreaded destruction from God. So he took his responsibility as a wealthy man very seriously to take care of other people around him. Uh, he, He talks about how he did not trust in that wealth. He did not worship things like the sun, the moon, and the stars. He did not rejoice when his enemy faced misfortune. He did not curse their lives, uh, which is a huge human temptation. When someone is against you constantly and then they go through a hard time, very easy for us to be like, "Mm, well, you kind of deserved that, didn't you? No, Job knows that for what it is, sinful, and he stayed away from it. He talks about how no stranger had to spend the night in the street. Uh, he, He always had his door open, and that was a, that, was ancient hospitality. You know, if anyone came to visit to visit your city, they would sit in the city square. We see this later in the book of Judges. And um, you were supposed to show hospitality to that person and open up your home and feed them and be welcoming. Uh, in verse 33, he says this, 
If I have concealed my sin, as people do, by hiding my guilt in my heart because I so feared the crowd and so dreaded the contempt of the clans that I kept silent, ugh, that I had someone to hear me, I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. Surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would give him an account of my every step. I would present it to him as to a ruler. So Job is still saying, I have God in his proper place. I know he's God. I know he's the creator. I know he's righteous. I just need to know why. Why is this happening to me? Um, All right. So then in chapter 32, it switches and we get this new character named Elihu. Elihu is very angry at Job for justifying himself rather than for justifying God. Mm -hmm. He's like, you need to be coming up. If you were truly righteous, you'd be coming up with reasons why God would be doing this in the first place. You wouldn't be justifying yourself. Uh, Elihu's also angry with the three friends of Job because they hadn't found a way to refute Job. But even though they couldn't refute what Job was saying, they were still condemning him as an evil man. Um, You know, to, to the men... Elihu says, your words have failed and I won't use your arguments. Uh, Wisdom comes from God and I feel compelled to speak and I will show no partiality based on status or age or whatever or or wealth. Okay, so then in Job 33, Elihu begins his speech to Job, which is very interesting. So Elihu essentially says to Job, why would God entertain a court appearance with you when you can't even answer these, you can't even answer men, uh, Zophar, Bildad, um, et cetera. So he basically says, stand up and answer me, Job. Uh, If you can't even answer me, God's not going to come for you. He talks about how God wants to save men from disaster. So he'll talk to them in dreams to warn them. Uh, and he also causes, God causes people to go through pain so that they will repent. So there's a reason. He's he's summing up that there, there must be a reason. Now, evidently, Job didn't want to say anything to Elihu because the next chapter begins again with then Elihu said. So this probably intimates there was a pause, like, are you going to answer me? And Job does not. Uh, In chapter 34, Elihu addresses the other men, the friends of Job. First, he sums up uh, that Job thinks he's innocent. uh, But of course, Elihu does not think Job is innocent because obviously um, a truly righteous man would be more humble. Right. Something along those lines is, is what he's aiming at. Um, he talks about how God is justice, so you can't accuse God of being unjust, uh, how God doesn't answer. He's not accountable to anyone. He doesn't owe Job an explanation. Um, but because God is justice and we can trust his justice, then indeed you must be wicked, Job. So he's really summing up all of the arguments that have been going on. Yeah. And he adds his own that Job is actually sinning against God by these accusations against God's justice. Uh, In chapter 35, Elihu switches and he speaks to Job directly. Uh, He says, your sin and your righteousness do no harm or benefit to God, only to the people around you. So he's trying to counter Job's whole, I tried to do, I did all the things that you command of us, God. 
Right. I lived right. You, God has outlined what is righteous and I have lived in that righteous way. So Elihu was like, you think God benefits by your righteousness or is harmed by your sin? Uh, and he, he accuses Job. He says, you know, your prayers to God in this are empty and arrogant. So that's why God's not replying to you. Uh, chapters 36 and 37 are still Elihu. Uh, he, he, and and here we we do seem to reveal a little bit of his self-importance. He seems to be yeah. a little bit proud of himself in these chapters. <laughs> yeah. He He's basically claiming to speak on God's behalf and he claims to have perfect knowledge. I, I'll read it. Please I'll, do. Yeah, bear with me a little longer and I will show you that there is more to be said in, on God's behalf. Mm -hmm. Be assured that my words are not false. One who has perfect knowledge is with you. <laughs> now, yes. that, it kind of even, it's kind of alluded to also at the very beginning in chapters 32, 33, where like he's always like, I'm just ready to speak. It's on the tip of my tongue. God has revealed it to you. Right, yeah. right. So he says, like, but now, a revelation. Job, listen to the words. Pay attention to everything I say. I'm about to open my mouth. My words are on the tip of my tongue. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know. Pay attention, Job, and listen to me. Be silent, and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak up, for I will. I want to vindicate you. But if not, then listen, be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. It's yeah. there's, there's this, this little soft arrogance, spurts of arrogance. That's soft, but pretty heavy-handed sometimes. Yeah. Yes, spurted and through this dialogue. What's really interesting, what I find really interesting is that not everything that Elihu says, not everything that all of the friends have said, and not everything that Job has said is wrong. No, no, yeah. It's just not entirely correct. It's not correct in this circumstance. Like, right. yes, that's true, but that doesn't actually apply to the situation. What? You're misapplying truths about God. Right, and your point about summarization is correct because Elihu here is summarizing the heart of these guys' positions. Yes. The one who has perfect knowledge is with you summarizes the heart of what his three Bildad Zophar and right yes. are, are thinking, his three friends. So they're like, Oh, we know how God has they're they're thinking very presumptuously. Yes. Job is a little bit different. He's just you know, his whole life has got turned upside down. Yeah. He's confused. Largely he's confused. De he's also he's, desperate. He's desperate. He's, he's very depressed. He's not necessarily holding on to his faith. Right. He's not completely right. No. But he's also at heart. His heart is not wrong. He just, he he wants to know. That's right. He wants God to speak to him. Right. There's never a bad thing to want God to speak to you. Right. But then God's about to. Right. And it is going to change Job's mind. Yes. About his whole situation. And there's a reason why God speaks the way he does, but I'll leave that to yes. right there. Okay, so let's recap chapter 38 and 39, which is the first part. So this is where God begins his reply to Job. Now, okay, God does not, answer the question that's most commonly associated with the book of Job. And he doesn't directly answer in a satisfying way the question that Job and his friends have spent the most time on, which is, why do the innocent suffer? We think of Job, and that's what we think of, the suffering servant of God, right? Why do the innocent suffer? Why do the righteous suffer while the evil man or the wicked man prospers and does not face the same why do the righteous fall right and uh and at first uh, this this answer that god gives does not seem very emotionally satisfying 
So the question that God appears to be drawing Job into is about the relationship between God and mankind. So who has what responsibility? It's really interesting to take a look at God's speech in that way. So God begins by challenging Job's knowledge. He literally says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? So... What's really interesting is that that God here seems to be accepting Job's legal language, his call to court, and now he is indicting Job back, as in a code of, uh, court of law. So Job accuses God of inflicting suffering on the innocent while allowing the wicked to, to thrive, right. and now God accuses Job of having no knowledge of God's plan for right. the world. So. It seems like that to you, Job, but do you know my plan for the world? Do you understand my justice Yeah. in order to accuse me of doing this? And he does so very cynically as well. Oh, yes. Yeah. And then God tells Job to prepare himself to answer some questions. Uh, In other words, these aren't rhetorical questions that God is asking Job, like, just think about the answers. No, (laughs) have answers as in a court of law. Job must provide real answers, whether spoken or internal. Right. So a few of the questions that God asks Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of of the earth? How did I create the earth? Two, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Basically, do you know how nature works? Do you have control over nature? And all of these, obviously, comparing and contrasting God and Job at this point. His next question is, do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions? So essentially, do you keep or run or maintain the wilderness, well, the animal kingdom. That's really important here to tie back to when Job last spoke, he was trying to be like, I used to help the pores and the widows. I would help these people. Yes. Now God's saying, I help these animals, right? Yes. The ones that you don't take care of. So he's The ones that he, you can't possibly even know about. That's I'm, right. I'm, I'm upkeeping. So, so he's comparing, right? God's making a comparison between what he has to upkeep versus what Job is upkept. Yes. Right? So already that's what's, yeah, just to add that in. Yes. So so God has control or or the ability to maintain and, and judge and reside over nature and all of creation. Right. So then uh, in chapters 40 to 41, uh, God concludes his first speech by saying, will the one who contends with the almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. So he calls Job him who accuses God and he who contends with the Almighty. So will you now correct me, Job? Like this is the difference between me and you. Will you now correct me? Answer me. You've accused me. So answer me. Job answers, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. And that's in 40 verses 4 to 5. So God continues. He speaks again. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? That's in verse 8, which sounds a lot like Job's friends, except it's coming from 
the right person. It's coming right. from yeah, God, yeah. right? Yeah. Would you discredit my justice, Job? Job, would you condemn me to justify yourself? Um, so he, God actually challenges Job in this chapter. Why don't you go ahead and take my power, Job, so that you can humble the wicked and bring them down to the grave? Are you wise enough to do that, Job? Is that, is that something you want to do? Right. Do you want to deal with all the wicked humans on the earth? And I can imagine Job just being like, hmm. Yeah. Like realize he's just realized he has no knowledge compared to God. And then yeah. God's like, so without your knowledge, do you want my power so you can right. deal with these wicked men? Or do you trust me to deal with these wicked men? Yeah. Um, then God goes on to talk about the behemoth and the Leviathan. Essentially, these, these untamable creations of God uh, that, that humans have tried and failed to tame. And God says, essentially to Job, what he says is, if you can't even stand against creations that I have made, then you can't stand against me. Like you, you, there's no, we, we are in different classes, right? Yeah. Um, God goes on, who has a financial claim against me? I own literally everything. <laughs> I made it. So this, this is an, a subtle indictment of Job because Job has said that God owes him an explanation. Right. God's like, well, <laughs> everything's mine. You're mine. The explanation's mine. Everything's mine. So technically, I don't owe you anything. Uh, in chapter 42, we get uh, Job's second response. And I'll read to you verses two to six. It says this. So this is Job talking to God. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak, I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So that my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. I true. so he, he, Job is saying, I really didn't know who you were, but now I do. And I understand that you have plans and purposes for all of this, not just my life, but for the entire world and for the wicked and for the righteous and for the animal kingdom that I am not privy to. Right. I get it now. You've right. got something going on and that I don't know about. So, he goes, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And I think an important question for us to ask is, what is Job repenting of? Because his friends this entire time have been telling him to repent for sin yeah. that has led him to this, to punishment from God. Job is not repenting for sin here, as his friends wanted him to. Instead, he's repenting for his lack of understanding of who God is. That whole, my ears have heard, had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, for this reason, I repent in dust and ashes. I didn't really know you. Um, what's interesting is then God has the three friends of Job repent for their sin and their, and their misunderstanding of God. Through Job. And offer sacrifices to God right. 
and then have Job pray for them for forgiveness. So he has this like forced reconciliation of these friends. Reconciliation is a huge, huge thing. And then God moves on to restore Job. So he restores his health, his wealth. Um, His family comes and gives him gifts. Uh, Job has uh, this the same number of new everything, right? right. Um, he has more children. Uh, he, his three daughters, interestingly, are mentioned by name, which probably means that, uh, because it's also mentioned that they were given land inheritances alongside of their brothers. So it probably means that they became prominent right. in the society and well-known. So their names would be recorded for that reason because their brother's names are not recorded. So that's mm. just an interesting thing. And that brings us to the end of Job. Right. Thoughts? Well, yeah, there's a lot to talk about. We kind of skimmed over a bunch of things like Leviathan. Mm-hmm. One thing that uh, we didn't talk about, is even though we're meant to talking about God using creation as a way to, not lamb-based Job, but in a sense. He, in a sense. He, yeah, in a sense. Um, put, he, he puts Job back in the proper perspective. Right. Because Job's suffering, and we all know this as human people, Suffering changes your perspective and it really skews how you see the world. And right. this can be helpful, but this can also be really damaging right. when you're in it. One of um, the things about these creation things I wanted to highlight too mm-hmm. was something you've been studying and something I've been studying. Several. I was studying this with the Leviathan. You're studying this, uh, something else. was just the, the meaning of what these were. Why did God choose these specific animals and why choose animals? Why use creation? It does show you a broader perspective Mm -hmm. for how much more God has to deal with. It just Mm -hmm. shows his power. But there's more to, there's just, oh yeah, there's more to it, right? There's there's, there's a reason why God chose these specific animals. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you care to elaborate on Sure, yeah. So in in the ancient world, you know, when you look at the ancient Near East and you look at at, at these different societies, this this concept of having civilization and then having um, non-civilization or the animal kingdom, the wild, was a very huge theme. And so civilization represented what, it it represented um, peace and control and what humans had been able to take dominion over. Whereas the animal kingdom and the wilderness represented chaos. And, um, you know, whether you're looking at uh, Genesis, you're looking at Adam and Eve's initial commissioning by God to take dominion over the earth, uh, or whether you're looking at, you know, the Neo-Assyrian kings who believed that it was their God-ordained um, task to go out and subdue the wilderness and bring it into civilization. This idea of, of um peace and, and control versus chaos represented by nature and the animal kingdom was huge. Right. So God bringing up, especially Behemoth and Leviathan, uh, who, you know, were seen as untamable. They wanted to tame them. Uh, humanity wanted to tame them, but they could not be tamed. They ultimately represent the chaos of the wild. Yes. Right? So, So God is essentially saying, Job, all of these things that even your greatest kings, even the greatest warrior among you cannot tame, all of that chaos, guess what? It's actually already tamed. I control it. Right. I am the leader. I I have created all. Right. And to add more thoughts, specifically Leviathan, is in Job 3.8, 
when Job's lamenting about the reason why he was born. Yeah. He's talking about, oh, he wishes he was in utter darkness. Uh, he curses the day, right? Uh, that he was born and he wish you know, he, he wishes utter darkness with Leviathan of all things. He yeah. mentions Leviathan in this, <clears throat> in this chaotic language about how he wishes he was no more. That, you know, the people didn't know about him, that he was just a worm in the ground, right? He yeah. cursed the day he was born. What's interesting is that why mention Leviathan of all those things in the midst of that? Yeah. It's because Leviathan represents, whether he's a real animal or not, it's not going to get to not that. Be- that's beside but, the point. But beside point. the point yeah. at this point is that metaphorically, yeah. this Leviathan creature represents an agent of chaos, an agent of darkness. Absolutely. So yes. now you think about Satan in the beginning and how that gets woven in for the rest of scripture as a dragon. Mm-hmm. Leviathan has a symbolic metaphorical relationship with um with Satan and with these powers of darkness. Mm-hmm. And yes. God is saying, I have power over that. I am actually, it looks like chaos to you because yeah. it is chaos to you, but I am in control of it. That's right. And, and, and why that is such a powerful response to Job is because from Job's perspective, his life has moved from order into chaos. Right. So this order and chaos theme is all the way through the book of Job. So Job believes and his friends believe that God has given humanity a, an ordered way to live life, which is true. Right. This is true, right? That he's he's following the morality of God and when he sins, he's offering sacrifices, he's doing all the right things, he's following God's order. Right. But then seemingly out of left field, his life descends into this realm of chaos. Yes. And so God then choosing to answer. So like a lot of us modern people, we read it and we're like, why is God bringing up animals? <laughs> yeah. Why is God? Because to us, we don't still have these main themes we don't look at the world as order and chaos, but they did very right. largely back then. So God then addresses the chaos. Yeah. So Job feels like his life has fallen into chaos. He wants God to bring order back into it. And God then addresses the chaos. I still have control over the chaos, even though it doesn't feel like it. And when, to be honest, you know, as a person, if you've ever gone through suffering, we want to know why. We feel as though that is going to bring us peace. Right. It's going to bring order into our suffering. But God is saying here, there's a better way. Trust me. Right. I have an order that's over the chaos. I know what I'm doing. Right. And then we get to choose do we accept God and his authority and his power over the chaos or do we not? Right. And Job did. Yeah. And yeah, in fact, he repents. Yeah. You know, for it. And it's, it's really interesting. And even in that repentance, one of, the, one of the themes is obviously I spoke about the Satan speaking presumptuously. like, Oh, he will, you know, let go of you and curse the day. Right. Curse you to your face. Right. And his three friends also spoke. And also, I guess, Elihu. All four of them spoke presumptuously. They know that this is how God is. Yes. Job wants to speaking presumptuously. Job's like, well, I know you're like this, but I also know you're like that. I need to talk to you because I don't know. Yeah. And I, and, and I, I'm confused. I, and, but, but, but in his confusion, he was also charging God. Yes. But, but that's why he, he didn't know that he was. He was like, mm-hmm. oh, I understand now. 
I repent in dust and ashes. I, right? I now understand who you are, which right. is more important than why I'm going through what I'm going through. That's right. That's exactly right. And so you see this power of this problem with presumptuousness that you have throughout yes. the whole, from Satan to uh, the people to Leviathan, okay? Just like yeah. this power. Uh, anyway, it's, just really, it's really interesting to think about that knowledge that God's knowledge counters that chaos. You're in a moment of chaos. God's knowledge counters that. Yes. And that is like a profound and the and and theme. our knowledge of God can counter our own suffering. That's right. Beautiful. Which is, which is a wild thought. Yeah, very yeah, not to be presumptuous in that, which is all that relates. It's a really powerful It's very humbling. Thema- yes. It's meant to be humbling. Right. Thematically just outstanding a uh, outstanding book. But Okay. So yeah. If you're good to move on to Psalms, I think, I think we, we, need, move to Psalms, I think we yeah. need to move on to Psalms because I think what's really interesting about the book of Psalms uh, is, is that we, we do see this concept of applying what we do know to be true against God to our life circumstances, whether that be suffering, whether that be pain, whether that be joy. We always apply to that what we know about God to keep us from going off our rockers. And we see that theme throughout Psalms. So it's a very different book than Job, but it's going to contain a lot of similar themes. Okay, Psalm chapter one, we're gonna go to chapter 18 today. Uh, Psalm chapter one introduces a recurrent theme that we're going to see in Psalms. And this is, it, uh, it compares and contrasts the way of the righteous, so the way the righteous person lives their life versus the way of the wicked, the way the wicked person lives their life and then the results of each, okay? So in Psalm chapter one, we learn that the righteous person delights in the law of God. So in God's morality that he's laid out for us and the righteous person meditates on that law daily. So thinks about it deeply, chews on those thoughts. That's contrasted to the wicked person who is not like this. They don't care about the law of God. They don't meditate on the law of God. And as such, they have become useless just like chaff. So the byproducts of grain production. All right. Chapter two, Psalm chapter two. Uh, We get another, we get introduced to another theme right away. It's going to be God and God's king, which in the time period of the kings was both literal. There there was a king, you know, in in Israel and Judah. But also it, it also looks forward to this messianic figure, which Christians believe, of course, is Jesus Christ. All right, so essentially Psalm 2 talks about how nations and their wicked kings rise up against God and his anointed. So physical king and future messianic king. Um, And the key to success here as presented by the psalmist is to serve the Lord and kiss the sun. So serve the Lord and show your allegiance to, be faithful to, the son, this anointed king, which of course today, uh, as Christians, we take to be the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, Psalm 2 does actually thematically connect to Psalm chapter 1, but on a national level. So on Psalm chapter 1 tells us that the righteous meditate on God's law, and Psalm chapter 2 opens uh, with the wicked meditating against God. Why do the nations conspire 
against God and the people's plot in vain. So whether you're righteous or wicked, you're meditating on something, but what is it? Is it God's law, his morality, or or not? Okay, Psalm chapter 3, this begins the Davidic Psalms. So these are the prayers and the songs of King David, that second king of Israel. Um, And this first one is dated to the rebellion of David's son Absalom when David had to leave Jerusalem Mm. because of this very surprisingly successful rebellion against King David at this point. The main theme here is that God was David's shield. And essentially, that means that he needed to trust God as his shield through all things. Chapter four, this is a prayer in time of distress. Uh, this, There are hints here, like in verses six and seven, that this time of distress is a drought or a famine, which is very serious. Uh, in the ancient world, they didn't, you know, have exports. They could get, you know, They could export food from really far away, which we can in our Western countries today. Um, But what's interesting is these prayers in times of distress always end with a statement of trust in God. No matter what, whether you save me from this or whether you don't, I trust you because you have that plan. Again, Mm -hmm. that plan over everything, even when it seems like chaos. Uh, Psalm chapter five, this is a prayer for help. It affirms that God is not happy. He's not pleased with human wickedness. David asks God to lead him into God's righteousness, but also he wants God to denounce the wicked people that are coming against him. So save me, essentially. And again, this ends with a declaration of trust in God. Here's my situation. It seems really bad, but I am going to trust in you no matter what. Chapter six, this is a look inside of David's heart, which is, so human. He is weary. He is in agony. He's in anguish. He feels worn out out from the amount of groaning and, and, and just crying that he is experiencing. He's asking God to save him, to have mercy on him. But then again, there's that statement of trust and faith in God. He says, you know, God has heard my cry for mercy. God has accepted my prayer. Now we're just going to wait and see. Chapter seven, again, David trusts God to be his shield, his protection in the face of many enemies. And like, it's easy for us to forget here because this is poetry and we're applying it to our own lives, which is true. But David was facing very real physical enemies as well. Um, And this ends with praise, even though he's facing a literal enemy who's trying to kill him. I will give thanks to the Lord because of what? Because he saved me? Because he's going to save me? No, because of God's righteousness. Chapter eight, this again is just praise of God. Uh, There's the famous, Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? That's this one, Psalm eight. (laughs) Psalm chapter nine, this is a song of thanks for answered prayer uh, and for deliverance from enemies. So God has saved David at this point. And he's really happy about it, <laughs> as as you would be. Yes. Psalm chapter 10 switches gears. This is a psalm of lament. Um, David said says things like, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself from me in times of trouble? This is very relatable. Very relatable. Have you ever gone through struggles and you just feel like God's not 
with you. He's not helping you. There's no evidence that he's making things easier or better in your life. Uh, David describes the wicked man's deeds and he calls on God, please end this. Please bring judgment to this. But again, even in this lamentation, even when God feels far away from David, it ends with a declaration of trust. Essentially, nevertheless, the Lord is king forever and ever. You hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them. You listen to their cry. You defend the fatherless and the oppressed. Mm. So again, here's my life experience that doesn't seem to be matching up with my faith. Here's what I know about you. I'm just going to cap off my complaints with what I know about you is true. Chapter 11, David proclaims that God is his refuge, a place where he can go and be safe. Even though times are bad, God is still God. He's still good. He's still in control. It ends with, for the Lord is righteous. He loves justice and the upright will see his face. Regardless of how our lives go or end here on earth, um, there there is another life. Chapter 12, this is a cry for help in the face of human betrayal. David was betrayed a lot. And again, there's this great statement of faith at the end. You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked who freely strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. So let's not be like that. Let's not freely strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. Chapter 13, David cries out to God when his prayers have not been answered. And he is clearly um, struggling with it. He says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Uh, And he ends again, he, he goes through this whole speech about how he's frustrated and then he ends but I trust in your unfailing love my heart rejoices in your salvation I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me so again it is okay to pour out your heart before God it is a good thing it is healthy it will help Uh, but at the same time we can't just stay in that place um when we vent our sorrow to God, let's also bring it back to what we know is true of God, that he has unfailing love, that he has saved us, that it is good to praise him for these things because in the past, God has been good to us. He has saved us from our sin, right? It's, you know, I talked about it last year at this point too. Our faith sometimes needs to be applied to us like we would apply bandage or medicine or cream to a wound. We get wounded and we actually have to apply our faith. Our faith is not going to save us from being wounded, but it absolutely can help. But we have to make it help. We have to apply it. We have tools. God has given us tools um, to help in this life with things like that. And Psalms is a very great example of that. Okay, Psalm 14. This talks about uh, the debased state of mankind, the not good, sinful state of mankind. And it ends with a prayer for God to restore his people. Uh, Psalm 15 looks at righteous and acceptable people. So it's a it's a contrast to Psalm 14, which looks at evil and foolish people. So now it's righteous and acceptable people. Uh, psalm 16, this is a psalm of trust. Uh, in God and a psalm of dedication to him. Uh, 
you know, he says, I will not serve false gods. I will praise you. You are my refuge. Chapter 17, this is a cry out to God for vindication. People are currently trying to take David down when he's writing this, and he's asking for uh, God to save him out of this situation. And then there is a beautiful line in verse 15 when he says, When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, uh, I guess, signal to the resurrection language Mm -hmm. that's to come. Anyways. Absolutely. And then our final chapter is Psalm 18. This is a song of praise after becoming king that David wrote. So how God delivered him from all of his enemies, including King Saul. Uh, David says all of these things that he describes God like this. God is my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my refuge, my shield, my horn of salvation, my stronghold. He is worthy of praise. So it's just David honoring and recognizing what God has done in his life. Um, David's vision um, of God as a divine warrior is recorded here. And he claims that God rewards the righteous. He says, you know, to the faithful, you show yourself faithful. Right. Right. So it's this, it's this relationship that we can have with God that we see King David having. Right. Though he wasn't perfect (laughs) like the rest of us. All right. Well, that wraps up our... Recap. Our recap for this week. Next week, we continue through the Psalms. Hope to see you there. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.